Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of the internet, shitposters and activists, thank you for joining tonight's special episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. As always, I'm your host, Justin. Before we get started, make sure you hit that subscribe button, turn on notifications to keep up to date with future shows. And if you like what you see, you can be an early supporter of the program by heading over to the Patreon link in the description and signing up to join our production team. If you want to keep in touch between shows, follow me on social media and join our community Discord channel by following the links in the description as well. Tonight's topic is probably going to be our most controversial and divisive yet climate change and renewable energy we're going to take questions so we're going to hit that like button leave some comments tell us what you think in the chat and give a warm welcome to tonight's guest mark nelson mark thank you for joining tonight how's it going i'm well justin glad to be on the show your your intro video has me totally pumped up to watch tonight <laughs> i'm just a guest along with everybody else i'm ready to ready to see some of those laughs in action all the way from germany too so Give us a little backstory. What do you do? What What is the story of Mark Nelson? Uh, what I'm currently doing and what yep. I'm here in Germany for, just arrived here today, is to save imperiled nuclear plants anywhere in the world, no matter who owns them, who runs them, who wants them gone, who wants them to stay. I'll go and help anyone anywhere save a nuclear plant from closure. And Germany's trying to close all of them, aren't they? Yeah, and they're doing it straight into an energy crisis before they've closed. There's an energy crisis developing now, and they're going to close it straight into an energy crisis. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I live in New Hampshire now, and like our primary source of power has been nuclear. I, I grew up on the south shore of Massachusetts and spent a lot of time on Cape Cod where we had um, – the nuclear plant that provided most of our energy and here in New Hampshire, we have a uh, Seabrook nuclear plant that provides a lot of our energy and they've been openly yep. talking about shutting them down the past few years. I believe both of their re renewals got denied and like there's a timeline on when they're going to be shut down. Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. There's no nuclear plants in Oklahoma, but my last year in high school, I decided to forced my parents to let me go to a boarding school in New Hampshire. And the <laughs> first time I ever really had to think about nuclear energy was in the context of my parents, who also didn't have to think about nuclear energy, signing a release form for the boarding school to be able to give me emergency iodine pills if Seabrook nuclear plant melted down. And like... I actually read about, like, uh, we talked back backstage before the show started um, about your work with Michael Schellenberger, and, like, that's how we got hooked up. I reached out to Michael, and he introduced us and suggested I bring you on the show. And I've always been a huge fan of his and the work he does in his TED Talks, um, being an advocate for pro-nuclear as a solution to climate change. But one of his articles that always sticks with me was titled, like, How Fukushima... Nagasaki, uh, how Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and Chernobyl prove that nuclear is safe uh, that he wrote for Forbes because they were the three worst possible disasters and really nothing came of them. Yep. So. And there's, there's, uh, you're going, you're going straight to the rabbit hole. You haven't even heard the story of Mark, but let's, let's wait, yeah. let's wait till later on that. Let's go straight yeah. for Chernobyl, you know, just straight up to the molten, like, bleeding bloody heart of anti-nuclearism now first i have to say that the world anti-nuclear movement was if anything at its strongest in the years preceding chernobyl so that's really important before chernobyl blew up heck a decade before even before three mile island one of the two reactors melted down in pennsylvania before that happened 
the world anti-nuclear movement was extremely strong. And I think we need to sit with that for a moment to use, uh, you know, what, what a think tank speak. We're just going to sit with that for a second. That before the most famous nuclear accidents happen, the ones that people say, oh, I understand why people are anti-nuclear. It's those accidents. No, the anti-nuclear preceded the accidents. The accidents emerged into an anti-nuclear world that's ready to tell a new story based on them. Here's the key thing about Chernobyl. Chernobyl nuclear plant was a really tight, compact facility for giant reactors, none of them with a containment, meaning some kind of hard case right. around the core protecting it in case it blew up or, or went bad somehow. When reactor number four started up, it only got a few months in before they blew the thing up with a really dumb test. Okay, they blew it up. The other three reactors kept going and the power plant stayed in operation for 14 years. Yeah, that's 10 years beyond the end of the Soviet Union itself. Right. And, and so the Chernobyl's the thing everyone talks about. Like when people hear like whenever there is an anti-nuclear activist, it, it's usually the climate change people. That's what really does blow my mind. And and is, they don't but wait, they talk about the accident as if that right. not only wiped Chernobyl off the map, but wiped Ukraine off the map or something. They failed to mention that workers were extremely upset all the way up into year 2000 when they felt their plant was getting destroyed, even though it had become safe and valuable for the Ukrainian nation, their plant was being destroyed out of some kind of misplaced punishment from Europe, infringing on the rights of people of Ukraine to have, have good jobs and, and electricity. So the reason why I keep coming back to that is because if people who knew about Chernobyl just knew that it couldn't even knock the plant out of service, the worst nuclear accident ever, couldn't knock the nuclear plant out of service. It had to be bribed with German money to turn off. Right. And like what what is like the heart of anti-nuclear sentiment isn't even just fear. Like from what I see, the anti-nuclear people, they always bring up Chernobyl. Lately they bring up Fukushima as like why nuclear isn't safe in their mind. But like it all comes down to the debate comes up when they bring up climate change, when they want to talk about like fossil fuels destroying the environment and that's when i get my chance to bring up well nuclear does isn't fossil fuel there's no emissions from nuclear but it isn't safe it did the crossover between people who are anti-nuclear and people who are pro-renewable energy and saving the environment and stopping climate change seems to it's not a venn diagram it's almost a circle right and in <laughs> fact in fact um to make to add even more nuance yeah. to that in energy expert circles, it's no longer considered credible mm -hmm. to go on about nuclear safety. You can say, well, other people have concerns about nuclear safety or other people are really worried about the waste or whatever. But the new the energy experts themselves who are not necessarily the people in power to work on energy, but they're the people who have the credentials and the PhDs and, you know, are mingle in polite energy society. They don't say that they don't like nuclear because of the safety. But I want to push back on you just a little bit, Justin. Okay. I think we should. I think we should return to the fear, and I think the fear is quite real. I think the fear doesn't come from nuclear reactors; it comes from nuclear bombs. And that's that's where I was. Okay, before I stumbled on Michael's TED talk years ago, um, talking about the safety of nuclear. The I was against nuclear. 
not because of the safety of the plants or even because I was an environmentalist. It was because I was anti-war, because I saw nuclear proliferation as a inherent aggression of the state, the state building up arms for the sole intent of destroying. And I understand the whole good fences and guns make good neighbors. A well-armed society is a polite society. But when the arms you're building serve no purpose beyond mass destruction, all they do is create fear. And I was an anti-nuclear proliferation activist before I was anything. And I saw nuclear energy as just a road to nuclear weapons. And then we see places like North Korea, where they weren't allowed to get nuclear energy and still got nuclear weapons that proved that kind of completely wrong. And, and of course, um, North Korea wasn't the first country to follow right. the pipeline of no nuclear energy, just nuclear weapons, right? Um, Israel, of course, is an example of a society that made, um, you can say what you want about Israel, but it wouldn't be easy to conquer, right? So, I mean, they they have made it to where they are essentially uneradicable. Right. Um, and, that, and, they've done it, and they've done it through nuclear defense. And that's almost that's kind of the joke I use now when it comes to nuclear weapons. I'm, I'm no longer an activist against nuclear weapons proliferation because I've come to realize that the countries that want nuclear weapons um, don't necessarily want nuclear weapons for existentially hostile means. A few of them might, sure, like India or and they Pakistan. Might. They India might, and they might have discovered that they aren't they aren't good for that. They right. Don't, Look, but, the, some of the most powerful nuclear armed countries that have ever existed have lost continual strings of wars since inventing nuclear weapons. Right. No, I'm not naming. I'm not naming names. I'm not naming names. I'm just saying. The United States. Um, and, <laughs> and honestly, Russia. Russia has had some ugly experiences despite having nuclear weapons. Right. Because nuclear weapons did not help Russia come no. to some kind of glorious conclusion with their with their Afghanistan adventure. What they do, what they do is for smaller countries, countries like North Korea, is they allow them to join a club of countries that don't get invaded by bigger countries. Yeah, it's not even a club that's on speaking terms necessarily. It's <laughs> right. united by not getting invaded by stronger countries. It doesn't mean they can end sanctions against themselves. Doesn't mean they can enter polite society. Doesn't mean they can be on the UN Security Council. Even um, UN Security Council is for countries who won World War II. <laughs> And then invented nukes. You you had to win World War II and invent nukes in order to make it onto the Security Council. Yeah, and now the, even the UN Security Council doesn't get along. Um, there's lines drawn in the sand. They there. get along enough not to exchange nukes. Right. Okay. But back to the power aspect. Okay. So right, right, right. We drifted very far. What I was going drifted, to say, we drifted far, you, but I don't think off topic. I don't no, think it's off topic. No. I think it's incredibly because, reasonable. You know what? When you're talking to people who say climate change is the literal apocalypse and they go on to describe what climate change is going to do to them and the world, yep. you realize that there is no meaningful difference in emotional tone and often in actual physical outcomes of nuclear war as in what they're describing from climate change billions dead and ecosystems harmed forever mad max people roaming cancer you know cancer filled bodies roaming the wastes you know stabbing someone for a bite to eat they're really describing a genre of stories and media that comes from after uh, uh, uh after an apocalyptic nuclear war or at least uh 
um, a version we can imagine in fiction. And how much of those fears, how much of the fear of nuclear energy, like with the fallout and catastrophic circumstance, could be assuaged by just like lifting restrictions on modern technology? I mean, like how old is the newest nuclear plant in the United States? I don't even know. Um, uh, oh, well, so, uh, you know, being technically right is the best kind of right, Justin. Uh, so if you want technically the most recent reactor to come online was yep. a TBA reactor. Um, okay. There's something to mess with your libertarianism. Maybe we'll come back to electricity <laughs> later, but TBA turned on a reactor that they started building a long time ago, couldn't justify finishing, started, restarted construction on in the 2000s, late 2000s when, um, it just wasn't looking great for natural gas at first. That changed. Now it's back to desperate for natural gas. So they decided to finish the nuke after two decades, and they finished it, and it came online. The newest nuclear construction are two reactors way behind uh, schedule and over budget. It's, you know, of course, in Georgia that are going to be incredible once they finally get approved to start, <laughs> once they finally get going. Those will be the newest reactors, and but we're going to be waiting probably – through much of 2022 for the first one and then 2023 start for the for the second one before that is what i feel like you were really asking in your question right when was the last time we were building a bunch of reactors and then what was the last one of that so we were accelerating our reactor construction starts all the way through three mile island basically every little two-bit utility in some corner of uh upper peninsula of some state all they all wanted nuclear it was the king power source now they discovered that as you know especially in complication with an anti-nuclear movement or a regulator that was moving the goalposts, you can we can blame whatever we want the truth is that we kept getting worse at building nuclear um after three mile island and slowly a bunch of these little utilities either went bankrupt or gave up their nuclear projects or canceled them or or they finished them, but it almost destroyed the utility and they had to combine with other utilities. That period of the last big wave of big nuclear reactors coming along, uh, coming online in the US was in the late 80s and early 90s. So America's newest old plants are the ones that came on in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and were considered just catastrophes for their ownership groups because of how long their construction had been. And, how it how a lot of that construction occurred during periods of high inflation mm, just brutal just brutal impossibly expensive billions down the drain we'll never make up for it now a lot of those late 80s early 90s plants are some of the cheapest and best electricity production you can find anywhere on planet earth they're just extraordinary and, so i mean how much better they, how much better could they be if they were rebuilt with or supplemented with modern technology and I, I don't even necessarily mean modern you look at thorium fast breeder reactors that technology is as old as nuclear the military was testing that in the 30s alongside nuclear they chose to go with the one that could help them make weapons instead of thorium um uh, just so I, I i hear where you're going with that story um yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna retrofit existing reactors to suddenly be fast breeders instead of right. thermal, but, 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 but we can, there is a possibility of changing out the fuel form. So instead of a ceramic fuel, we hopefully will get to the point where we're putting metallic fuel, like metallic uranium fuel, maybe some thorium in these uh, nuclear reactors in the U S if we do that and we hold the line with the regulator and say, Hey, 
if we make this higher performance, that needs to come in, in the in the form of lower electricity costs or higher electricity production, not in just a paperwork exercise of arbitrarily lower uh, meltdown probabilities or something. So if we do these, if we do these modern technologies for our reactors, um, we should be able to get another bump in performance, lower cost, longer refueling cycle, years between opening up the reactor um, by making fuels that can burn up in the reactor a lot longer. And if you put fuels in the reactor that burn up a lot longer, it means pretty much by definition, they are breeding and burning more of the um, initially, you could say inert nuclear material in the fuels, along with some of the, um, some of the transmutated elements like plutonium that would normally build up in spent nuclear fuel. Uh, this is kind of cool. If this comes to fruition in the next 10 years, 15 years, we could see a drop in electricity costs across our fleet just from higher up times and uh, um, possibly even more power up rates. Power up rates are interesting. We keep losing nuclear plants, typically for the dumbest reasons, okay? Um, you may be a hardcore libertarian, but I think we can all agree that civil liberties are harmed if the electricity don't flow. And if you have to right. do some things to make sure the electricity flows, it's worth it because the freedom flows after the electricity. It really does. So we've been losing nuclear reactors for some dumb reasons because of un chaotic markets and things that don't really belong in electricity, as nice as they sound in other corners of the libertarian world. We've still kept our nuclear production almost the same despite continually losing reactors by uprating the plants, by refitting them with bigger steam generators. These are like the tea kettles, electric tea kettles that are just getting uh, bigger and bigger and putting out more steam to bigger, stronger turbines. So keeping the same plant staff and just putting out more, more, more megawatts. It's beautiful. I, I wouldn't even necessarily that goes against libertarian ideals or libertarian philosophy. Like libertarians are all about decentralization and minimizing the role of the state. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that a private power company can't operate a nuclear plant is the problem no. is the state regulators getting in the way of them doing it and getting in the way of their distribution. Um, I well, am a huge fan Justin, of solar and wind, but I recognize that solar and wind doesn't necessarily scale. Solar and wind might be great on my homestead, but it's not going to power a city. Right. And it might not be great on your homestead. Certainly, it was a, it was a radical transformation of American farming life to get hooked up to the grid. It really mattered. Look, American farmers were experts at off-grid electricity a really long time ago. We're all like, oh, microgrids, innovation, all this bullshit. No, no. You can get out a Sears catalog from 1900 and you can open it up to look at microgrid equipment. And all I'm saying is that like, I, I would love to be able to have microgrid as far as self-reliance on my own property. I recognize sure. that beyond my own property, I would still probably, I would still definitely want to be tied into the grid because I recognize things about intermittency, battery storage, but minimize my reliance on it. The reason why, the reason why this microgrid stuff dropped off after the 1910s, 20s, 30s Sears catalogs is because it was so much worse in every way than the grid. The big grid is the solution to the harm to the problems to the limitations of microgrids so i would suggest that if you hear people suddenly start talking about microgrids in your area <laughs> it probably means they've screwed up the grid and you're about to go backwards in your happiness and liberty
Well, just a warning, just a warning. The more you hear about microgrids, it's likely the more we're messing up one of the greatest liberators of humans, men and women, especially women of all time. And that's electricity from the ground. I, I, I won't deny that. It's just what I do see is a huge surge in popularity, especially here in New England with home solar. People wanting to power their own homes with solar. And the, nobody's getting off the grid. Nobody's disconnecting from city power. But everyone's minimizing their reliance on it and having, having it as a backup. It depends on what you mean by reliance. It may be that while solar is on, that's when they need electricity the least. I mean, in New England, it is basically that. Um, the problem is, when you really, really need to be able to rely on the grid, you may have effectively defunded the hard time equipment because during the easy times, everyone was paying themselves to use solar by voting in solar subsidies. So well, I, subsidies I'm, I'm not saying I disagree with the vision. The vision is beautiful. The vision subsidies, subsidies we can absolutely agree with are bad. Um, I don't even want nuclear subsidized. I don't want coal subsidized. If nuclear needs <laughs> subsidies, something has gone catastrophically wrong with the technocratic management of the grid. I'm telling you, if nuclear needs subsidies, nuclear is so good now that it needs subsidies because other things got subsidized or other things got prioritized by our techno masters by our technological elite that that invented these electricity markets just a few years ago you know electricity markets are scarcely or older than the war in afghanistan so how do we get people to recognize the need for nuclear as opposed to the wind and the solar and things that they want for clean energy or a bigger question maybe more to the point how many coal plants can be taken offline for each nuclear plant? So, yeah, let's start with the pretty answer rather than the <laughs> ugly answer. Because you said, yeah. how can people learn about nuclear? How can they understand that nuclear yeah. is the most beautiful solution? There's the pretty answer and the ugly answer. The pretty answer is I get to ask, I get to be asked a question like yours, Justin. How many coal plants can we take off with nuclear? And I can respond with joy knowing that every single one of those coal mining families, every single one of those coal plant operators is going to be able to retrain for a tougher, but better, higher paid position, multi-generational position at that same nuclear plant. And that is a beautiful vision. Because if we were just saying, yeah, chuck out the coal, we don't like the pollution, we don't like climate change, then you end up with something like what's happening in the Navajo Nation, where they lost one of their biggest taxpayers, biggest revenue sources, biggest employers, because outside groups, not the Navajo, outside groups said, this is so bad, it's oppressing the natives, it's, a bit, it's just ugly, it's causing climate change, it's going to cause air pollution to the poor Navajo Nation, we should just jump in and make sure it's shit canned. And the Navajo Nation lost one of their most precious economic drivers and they it's hard for them to say much about it because you know it's coal and coal isn't very popular um right they can admit that it was putting out pollution they can admit that it was putting out uncontrolled climate change gases but it was also feeding them so what can we can speak with joy about nuclear we can celebrate the positive the pretty nuclear story and we can get the message out when we say one small reactor will replace one fairly large coal boiling 
unit that would be connected to a turbine. So many coal plants in the U.S. have individual furnaces, furnaces for burning powdered pulverized coal that comes on railroad cars. You need about, just to give you an idea, for a big coal plant of like two fat units of the 500 megawatts each, just go with the flow for now. 500 is our number, megawatts, two of them, two big furnaces for this, for a one gigawatt coal plant. That's going to need something like 120 train cars, hopper cars filled with coal each day coming in from the West, coming in from Wyoming um, or wherever else has coal cheap enough to ship it by rail somewhere else. That coal will be crushed, powderized and uh, put up a conveyor belt and sprayed like in a cloud into a massive furnace with a huge swirling hurricane of fire. Those hot gases will boil the shit out of some water. That water will turn into steam. That steam turns a big turbine. It goes and that is the flicker that you would see in lights if you slowed it down on high motion camera. It's the, literally those big turbine spinning. You can replace those two boilers with one big juicy nuclear reactor or two or three smaller reactors if we get those, get those started. Um, does that kind of help? That's kind of pretty. It means that a few tons of fuel are going to be shipped in each year. Just a little bit of a little bit of uranium comes into that plant. A tiny little bit of uranium comes on a truck, and that will take care of the nuclear reactor to operate for another year and a half straight. And that's substituting for 120 cars of coal each day. And that that really it, it hits on. So the transport of the uranium, the nuclear material, that gets down to the root of what people are scared of and what are people, no, people it doesn't, are afraid of. It doesn't, it doesn't, they're scared of the bomb. They take it out on other things. And once they become professional, they lose their fear and they're just doing it out of a job or sense of duty or just wanting to destroy stuff and watch the world burn. Like, well, the, even, like the professionals even, at NRDC, the professionals at Union of Concerned Scientists, they don't really feel fear anymore. It's just a, it's a job, you know, it's a the professionals. It's, a I, it's not, it's not the professionals we're worried about. It's the normal people. It's the voters. It's the ah, people yeah, who the donate voters, to campaigns. Voters are living in the most nuclear powered nation we've ever had in terms of sheer quantity of nuclear plants and nuclear power. Obviously our 20% of nuclear electricity in the U S is nowhere near the 70% in France or the 50% in Ukraine or other countries like that. But in terms of having the most reactors, the most people employed in nuclear, the most nuclear power on the grid, the USA is number one, right? But but even, even when you're talking, no one but, cares. No one cares, Justin. No one cares about that fuel. No one's what, blocking it. No one's standing in front of the trucks. No one cares. No, but when you're talking to the voter, when you're talking to your normal person, when you get past the fear of meltdown, when you get past the fear of explosive potential, when you get past the fear of weapon weapons, the last resort they have is, well, what about the waste? What the about nuclear the waste? waste? What about so the waste? And that's I what you get the activists the nuclear the people. I agree with the anti-nuclear trolls and haters, okay? Yep. Haters and uh, not losers in the case that, of blocking Yucca Mountain. I think Yucca Mountain was ill-conceived. I think it was uh, it would have been ill conducted. I think it needs to be canceled forever. I think it was bad local politics, bad state politics, bad national politics. And you know the part that really just burns me is bad engineering, because it's an engineering attempted answer to a spiritual quandary. 
And it's a spiritual quandary that needs to be answered with care, with love, with affection, and with a little bit of a, a twinkle in the eye, not with some crazy over-engineered down, uh, you know, down in the earth tomb for this fairly inert nuclear material. That so what would you do? No one really cares about while it's just sitting there at the plant. What would you do with operate. the waste? Easy. You build an art museum like the like the <laughs> Dutch did, and then you put it in, and you put up your best artwork, and then you charge tickets. So the waste isn't a concern for people to be around. It literally just sits there, surrounded by a bit of a bit of thick little met, thick metal and thick concrete, and you're done. You're done. Okay. It's a giant, like fifty ton, hundred ton case. And you know what? If the aliens want to come and airlift out and teleport hundred ton casts of very little, um, let's just say very little economic value if it's spent fuel from a light water reactor. That may change if we build those fast reactors that you were talking about a few minutes ago. We yep. could make a lot of fuel out of it. It's just you know more expensive than raw uranium until today's market rally, but. Um, is more expensive than to, to build a new plant to just to reprocess all the waste. And like the French do it, the Japanese do it. There's a bunch of countries that reprocess the waste. The Russians have a plant, but you know, they're a little bit more chill than we are with the whole like um, waste reprocessing thing. So they can make sense out of it for the French, by the way, it works like this. They reprocess their waste. Once they get all the nuclear fuel out of the reactor, when it's done, mm -hmm. They let it cool off for a bit. They send it to a site up in the north um, on the English Channel, and they chop up these tubes, long, skinny metal tubes with little bitty pellets in it. They chop them up. They dissolve it in, in acid, and they separate out the plutonium and uranium from all the other crap. All the other crap gets locked in its little cases and sent off somewhere because it's not going to make any more energy for anyone. Um, and then the uranium and plutonium, it goes into new fuel. The end result of this whole process is a, is a reduction in about half. So a 50% reduction in the amount of mined uranium that France needs for its reactors compared to ours. Okay. Um, I, I usually just go with the fact that the environmentalists are bad about, mad about us having to store waste and saying, well, at least we're storing it. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> If we were capturing carbon dioxide, if we were capturing all the world's carbon dioxide waste, it would take, uh, I need to run the numbers. So I'm going to say this and yep. then people are going to be able to call out my ass right there in the comments if they're, if they're doing it. It would only take a second or two of the world's carbon consumption to have more CO2 by volume than all the world's nuclear waste ever. A few minutes later, you'd have more than all the ultra low radioactivity mining waste like people people don't understand just how you know i saw a news item from just a few days ago a co2 pipeline a pipeline carrying pressurized co2 leaked and by itself it just undid a bunch of what the effort was on, on capturing the co2 in the first place there's so much co2 we have no way to do something with all the co2 it's at the moment we turn into a waste product either we realize we don't care about co2 we just let it go again or we completely destroy any carbon-based energy forever and, and that's really, say, that, i like this none of that because it'll stop climate change no one no one anywhere will stop climate change in the future if it means blackouts for them today no one will and that's so really the crux of it. That are on the way toward 
it always comes down it always comes down to climate change it always comes down to where people fall on climate change how they feel about different things and i understand skepticism i understand people who maybe don't believe the evidence that's presented to them in the way it's presented to them for climate change i understand the notion that hey we we, the climate is always changing. That's what a climate is. It's in flux. We can prove that the Earth has gone through hot cycles and cold cycles in the past. Unfortunately, we don't have a second Earth to conduct a control experiment on. Yeah, exactly. Prove that everything is created by man. And without being able to prove everything is created by man, we can't really prove the skeptics wrong when they say that climate change isn't man-made. But what we can all agree on is that pollution is bad. Well, like, Justin, can I, can I go one, yep. one further on what I hope we could agree on? Absolutely. It is a weird and scary experiment to intentionally change our atmosphere's composition when we don't know that it will definitely work out. Right. Okay. We don't have a control. Well, we in other words, it. I am saying that where I come down on climate change, if all the climate scientists change their tune tomorrow, first of all, I'd be a little suspicious. Second of <laughs> all, I'd say I just don't trust experiments changing the atmospheric composition there are people who make the argument no it'll make up it'll make up for the bad things because we'll have more uh plant growth because it'll be a more fertilized atmosphere whatever i i understand that most plants are not are currently um one of their limitations after nitrogen and phosphorus is going to be uh carbon they are carbon limited yeah i don't think it's worth an experiment i definitely agree that all things held equal we should have less carbon emissions because we are rapidly perturbing the quantity of carbon by itself. Notice that's not the same thing as saying people are going to die. It's not the same thing as we need to shut off all the power plants today, which would cause people to die. It's saying that if it's in our power to stop this unintentional experiment and changing the atmosphere composition, I think it's only wise to take the precaution of doing so. But what I will warn to folks who say we must do it, shut down that carbon at all costs. First of all, you just do a check. You say, oh, at all costs, meaning you're okay with nuclear. And if they say no, they're just bullshitters. Toss them out. <laughs> it means that their image of climate change as an apocalypse is actually just a warmed up in the microwave leftover vision of the apocalypse from nuclear war. It means they've just substituted for the same vision of a destroyed earth and dead humans. They've just substituted as nuclear weapons being the cause, just straight over to it being carbon the cause. It's why the elite boomers, the rich, rich, rich boomers who control the big money flows in the uh, top of the environmental movement, they are hung up about nuclear war. Their vision of climate change is the same thing as the vision of nuclear war. Heck, some of them say destabilizing climate will cause nuclear war. And that's why they don't like nuclear typically. Yeah. Also because they fought against it when they were kids. So for everyone else who thinks we should not perturb the climate, and we should act on it as quickly as possible. I say, make sure you do this in a way that doesn't leave you without a good working grid. Because should you do that, you first of all, knock yourself out of the game of intentional climate change reduction. Because look, degrowthing yourself, messing up your grid, making everybody into a homesteader in their own yard. Grandma doesn't need to be a homesteader. Grandma needs electricity, okay? Maybe a young, able-bodied, tough guy thinks I can get by without electricity, but we need that man using his mind and his brawn in productive ways, not re replicating the effect of electricity. Just as an aside, I don't know if you've got fitness um, people uh, on your show or people who like to lift or do biking or running, but 
you guys should check sometime about how much work you do on a stationary bike compared to your electricity usage for the month. What I mean is you may work your ass off for an hour and only have made a fraction of a, of a kilowatt hour, only a fraction of a kilowatt hour. We sell kilowatt hours from nuclear plants for uh, a few cents and in delivered electricity terms, after you paid for the billing, the lines, the wires, what's called the transmission, this is the thick stuff to take it from the power plant, thick lines, and then the thin lines to break it down to the neighborhoods and the houses. And we pay all the insurance, we pay for all the tree cutting and the disaster emergency prep, all of that. The delivered cost for your all out workout on a stationary bike is gonna be on the order of a few pennies right? That's the magic of electricity. It leverages human freedom, human individual liberty into whatever direction you want to build. So you're yeah. saying that Vermin Supreme's plan to power the world with zombies on a hamster wheel is a no-go. <laughs> I don't, their plan is, if they have a plan that's real, they can't quite articulate it anymore because right. most Germans hate wind turbines. So they're not, they're not really building wind turbines, okay? Um, well, here's one. So, so we, we can, we, we've settled the argument. Nuclear is better than coal, uh, strictly because of pollution. Take any other environmental argument out of it. Take any safety argument about it strictly for pollution. Nuclear is better than coal. How is nuclear? Can, better we, can than we be contrarian? Can we can be contrarian here on this show? Nuclear yes. is worse than coal in an important way. Okay. Go it ahead. takes a truckload of talented people trusting each other and working in the same direction and coal doesn't take as many talented people trusting each other and working in the same direction so depending on your optimism about humans freely choosing to associate with each other for common good and common projects you might say as a libertarian nuclear is too much work we aren't good enough for nuclear Coal, except for the fact that it's you can't get it financed now because all the big banks won't <laughs> finance a coal plant, and that a top-of-the-line modern coal plant is about as complicated and sometimes as expensive as a modern nuclear plant. Did you know that? Well, it, to me, to, to my understanding, a coal plant is just a steam plant. Coal is just a source of heat. Yes, and but in coal, we've gone a lot further than we okay. have in the nuclear world in pushing up the temperature and the pressure of the water cycle. There's uh, uh, supercritical steam coal plants. There's ultra supercritical steam coal plants. That means you're pushing that steam beyond almost all known material boundaries. You're pushing up extreme pressures, extreme temperatures, because you get more efficient transfer of energy for out of the steam into your turbine that way. And that means you get more bang for your buck from each piece of coal. At the point that you keep adding pressure and temperature, you're adding complexity, you're adding difficulty um, in both building and operation. And that ends up costing you more and more billions. Those are the coal plants, that are the large coal plants that are being built in the rapidly developing countries that are just in, I, if I can say it, fuck it mode. And they're just building what they need to survive. China's building coal plants that are ultra super critical. Countries that are rejecting nuclear, but are still growing rapidly, they're building this coal, these coal plants. Well, and China's also building hydroelectric. Yeah, China so there's hydro, but hydro is, is geographically limited. 
And it's geographically limited. And there's another the, envi- the environmental damage from hydro alone. Um, China yeah. just built a bunch of new dams on, um, I forget the name of the river, it, but it runs down the Mekong Delta. They dried up Vietnam and Laos. They, sh- they dried the river that Vietnam relies on because they built the dam. Yeah, water issues get really spicy. The other, the other really sensitive water dam issues that I know about are on the Nile between uh, Ethiopia and its neighbors. Another mm-hmm. one is on the um, the uh, Colorado. The Hoover Dam runs dry. Now. The the Colorado yeah, but River dry. That's now. one country. It's just not <laughs> as spicy. Well, essentially yeah. one country. Um, right. There's also a few rivers in Central Asia that are getting really that have the potential to be flashpoints between like uh tajikistan and and uh uzbekistan they've squabbled over water from new dam projects there and here's the other thing hydro is weather resistant electricity it is not climate resistant electricity so explain that one for people yeah there's a bunch of dams that were absolutely critical part of the energy modeling in the desert in the western part of the u.s that mm-hmm. led the regulators to being so foolish as to let nuclear plants shut down they assumed that hydro would just be there now the hydro is not there because it's too low the water levels are too low why are the water levels too low call it climate change call it drought what is it maybe it's a recurrent cycle that comes every you know 40 years from now until king to come whatever it's still a climate induced shortage of hydroelectricity so there's still intermittency even in hydro. The river might so run dry. Intermittency is typically used yeah. just for like shorter term things. But sure. if we can smile and say intermittency on like the multi-year timescale, then yes. Yeah. It's so it, and that's the big problem with wind and solar and why nuclear is better than wind and solar. Yeah. And what's interesting is that wind and solar also go through year or multi-year down periods. It's not really well understood. It's not really, it's certainly not understood by the public. But, you know, it's just been a down year for wind in Europe. The wind hasn't been as high. A bunch of the wind companies have been writing their shareholders and say, dear shareholders, we are lowering our expected returns this year because the wind was bad. And uh, the, the wind is bad. You're a giant wind company. You're spread over multiple countries. And you're saying the wind was bad. Now, we can't make fun of them. In the end, they're being honest with their shareholders. The truth is that. Whole hemispheres can just be less windy some years, or too windy. Like it, I, when I went to school at Mass Maritime, um, and I'm familiar with how steam plants operate. I work in the steam plant on the ship at Mass Maritime all the time. Um, but we had a wind turbine on campus that was primary source of power for the dorms. Except when it was too windy, they'd have to lock the brakes on it, and it wouldn't spin in storms. Right, <laughs> because it became too dangerous. Now, let us not pretend that it wasn't important for, say, one of the nuclear plants that got directly hit by the hurricane a few days ago. Ida, um, it, Waterford nuclear plant did shut down in preparation for losing outside power. So it's not that nothing doesn't do this. It's just that in the end, wind, electricity, when it isn't there, like in the Texas freeze, all the wind electricity proponents say you should never count on us. They say that as an advertising point. The good thing about wind is you never have to count on us because you never can. And it is honesty in a statement like that. Now, what we can think of wind as doing as optional fuel saving devices if we're okay with the cost and the environmental impacts. 
So, I, I mean, when it comes down to the reliance and what ends up shutting down a source, um, the Cape Cod nuclear station in Massachusetts, I remember back when I was in college, we had a massive storm. It was a winter blizzard, um, led to flooding, and the plant got flooded and they had to shut down the reactor and people panicked and lost their minds and everyone was like we lost power on the cape because of it there didn't have backups in place at the time and everyone like started freaking out after the fact was like oh my god we had flooding and the reactor got shut down how dangerous is it that we live close to the reactor i'm like i mean the safety's worked they were able to shut it down. <laughs> like, Which, of course, pulls us back full circle to the argument that you mentioned from Michael Schellenberger's article on nuclear safety, which is um, Fukushima worked in the sense that, and no one's going to accept this, certainly if you felt you lost your land or your livelihood or your, or your house from Fukushima evacuations, then this is not what you want to hear. But Fukushima protected lives from being lost to radiation exposure it's not that shouldn't be our standard for successful operation of a nuclear plant we hold we must hold ourselves to a higher standard in nuclear and if anyone's like no that's not fair we should just hold to the same standards as others i say no no nuclear can be and should be held to its own internal standards and i accept that argument from the outside world nuclear is special justin it is special people just are waiting to make up their minds about whether it's special good or special bad. Really, if it's special right. bad, it means it wipes your home off the face of the earth, burns your family to death in front of you, contaminates your babies, leaves waste for centuries that causes zombies to roam a wasteland. You know, that's that's special bad run amok in your mind. Special good is something much more beautiful. Special good is that, now here's a weird dream. Each person could have their own little nuclear homestead you know, like submarines, right? That can run right. on 20 years on one, one refueling. That's the dream. One little basket of metal can run a boat for, for decades. Yeah. So how do we get to that point? Well, so communicating well is one of them. One is acknowledging that almost every time somebody is asking or talking about nuclear and they're scared of it or they're negative about it, they have something inside of them that is rational, that is logical, that is making sense, that is about protecting home and hearth, that is about a misunderstanding they may have had, that is about a real concern that a nuclear person doesn't feel because it's not their risk, it's somebody else's risk. It's respecting people who have an issue with nuclear. That's the first step. Second step, knowing that the beauty of nuclear, once people grasp it, there's really nothing else like it. It's here's the here's the asymmetry. When as people get to know nuclear better, almost all of them like it better, and it's typically the typically the inverse relationship for a lot of other energy technologies. The more you know, the less you like. Or the closer you are, the less you like it. Nuclear has the opposite. So there's a patience that has to come. Respect is one. Second is patience. Yeah. And then the third is the just plain old optimism of loving people, loving the potential of all working together, this talented team, trusting each other and working in one direction to get nuclear. You need more of it than you need for any other technology because nuclear is special, but that becomes an opportunity for togetherness. It becomes an opportunity for voluntary association of people 
with us with a beautiful vision together. You know, a lot of people who built uh, who built cathedrals, it's not quite they were required, but they donated out of the beauty of the task for a collective cause they could see rising in front of their eyes in their own time, right? Yeah. A house of God, but also a house of man. Yes, beautiful and built for its beauty. Nuclear plants should be a lot more beautiful. We're not there yet. We don't have the stained glass windows we need in nuclear plants in the visitor center. So you're center. not a fan of brutalism. <laughs> what? What? Sorry. You're not. You're not a fan of brutalist architecture. Uh, I was a lot more fan before I knew more people. In other words, <laughs> I, I love the iconoclasm of it. I love the bloody mindedness, the singular vision of the great architect. I still love some of the great brutalist architecture works. I've softened my vision because I've started to respect the values of tradition, of collective intelligence, rather than individual imposed um, aesthetic will that comes from a lot of the brutalist movement. It's like one guy saying, I have this big new idea. I will change things to not be like the past. It will be like my single vision. If you don't like it, screw you. Nah, I'm not really for that. I'm for the collective intelligence of long traditions and uh, built by free choices of people all acting in ways that make them feel good and feel comfortable. Like vernacular architecture, I think I respect a lot more now than I did. I don't know exactly how we bring that into nuclear, except to say that if nuclear plants put a, you know, a quarter of a percent of their construction budgets, inflated as they are, into art, we would possibly be having a different conversation about nuclear right now. There are some nuclear plants out there with really beautiful artwork on them, but they're not well known. And in the end, they're, for, they're beautiful expressions of the power of nuclear for locals. I mean, I would like there to be a lot more nuclear tourism internationally, but it is what it is at the moment. We need to build beautiful things for local people. And that means nuclear plants that are as beautiful as the attributes of of um, patience and respect that I that I mentioned as the bedrock of communicating a nuclear future. So you say you want to see nuclear tourism, uh, but we also want to see a future where there's nuclear everywhere. What's the point of tourism if you have nuclear everywhere? What's the point of seeing somebody else's cathedral if you've got one in your hometown? I mean, I'm ill-equipped to answer that because I'm not an architecture geek <laughs> or a religious geek. But so I, I get it. Okay. We'll so, fix it. We'll fix it. Are you still in Massachusetts? I'm in New Hampshire. Oh right, New Hampshire. Yeah. All right. Next time in next time I'm in Boston, you come down and I'll show you how to love and hate the the, the best worst buildings and brutalism in Mass in in Boston, and we'll go look at some of the really gorgeous, um, truly American architectural styles that there are good examples of from the uh, from the era when the idea was to make buildings as beautiful as possible, like 1890s to 1920s. We'll go look at those two. Usually then, when I go to Boston, I just sit in the hall. <laughs> For well, that's a little early. That's a little yeah. early. But um, it certainly is the type of building that partook in traditions brought over from somewhere else, but practiced with some amount of creativity, but also um, respect. So what you're saying is we need to have people build a nuclear plant that isn't an eyesore for property owners. Yeah, so we get absolutely. Happy absolutely. to have it in their neighborhood. But I think that should be done no matter what type of power plant or industrial facility. It should fascinate. It should respect. Um, I think one of the reasons that wind is becoming hated across so much of the of the you rich world is that 
Look, I think the shape is beautiful. I was an aerospace engineer by training before I, I switched to nuclear. And I can I can admit that the device is very pretty. In order to make the wind power work out financially, you got to make them really big. At some point, it no longer respects people just through sheer size. And or, I, think I mean, with offshore wind, there. with offshore wind, it definitely doesn't respect dolphins and whales. So it's going to be a very interesting story on offshore wind because at least for the north, the northeast part of the U.S., the mm -hmm. offshore wind is expected to be as much as even a catastrophically over-budget nuclear plant, which is a little bit troubling to me because you will still have to build out the rest of the grid and the rest of equipment on the grid as if the wind wasn't there. And right. you're going to have to pay for the wind like it was a, a custom nuclear plant project built from scratch the first time with five years over budget and double the cost you expect. So now could you see a future? Like I said, my dream is a solar is solar panels on every house powering every home and non-reliance de complete decentralization where it is just small nuclear plants in cities and people in suburbs and rural areas self power uh, with battery storage and home solar, but still tied into a connected grid just for backup. I could see that. So, um, you know, batteries take a lot of the Earth's material and a lot of manufacturing, a lot of energy to make. But batteries, um, if they were in every home, would provide a lot of the feeling of security that people want. Now, they're not, a, you know, we don't have batteries that even are close to what you get with a backup diesel or even natural gas generator. But one potential vision is this, a hardened spine of the grid. So strong transmission, perhaps even undergrounded if we decide that's the way we want to use our societal wealth. And then we have strong individual homes. Um, that means batteries, good connection to the grid. Um, and then you have nuclear plants scattered out approximately matching the density of the U.S. population. So each region, each zone kind of has its nuclear fleet. Now, we've sort of did that. That's the way that 20% of nuclear electricity that comes into our grid has actually produced it more or less until becoming um, imbalanced in recent years by nuclear plants being turned off near bigger population regions. Mm -hmm. Until recently, until that started happening, nuclear plants were approximately scattered around where the U.S. population lived. That meant that each little region was kind of looking out for itself, at least as regards its own nuclear electricity. All right. I got one final question for you. How do you think nuclear can help with the current issues in current public relations nightmare and backlash against cryptocurrency and Bitcoin's big energy demands? Oh, that's easy. If crypto community bands together and gets that collective action problem solved and keeping saving nuclear plants or getting new ones built, then they would have they will have done society a favor so large that it would take a lot of crypto crime in order to, to drag down that accomplishment of getting new baseload nuclear plants built. You know, I've, I've had a bunch of fascinating conversation. I'm not, I'm not invested in crypto myself, um, but I'm having more and more friends and new colleagues that are. And what I tell them and what they tell me adds up to one thing. If we can help each other get the nuclear plant saved and built, they will have paid back whatever debt they may have incurred in society from their energy usage or strange terminology or weird, crazy look around the eye that they get when they talk about crypto. 
all of those all of those harms on society they will have paid back many times over if they can get us over the over the starting line on building new nuclear plants and if they can ensure we never lose a nuclear plant ever again one last note on this i hear rumors out there of and sometimes confirmed of plants that i was running around like crazy trying to save up until recently being saved in part because of a great relationship between groups of crypto miners and the new plant owners because they the crypto miners want that nuclear electricity that's unappreciated by society they they have the vision to get that nuclear power and lock it down and save it and that's beautiful in that case make all the crypto you want save our nuclear plants all right, Mark, we're coming up on an hour. I just want to thank you again so much for coming on and uh, joining me tonight. Anything else, any last bit you want to leave people with and tell people where they can follow you and learn more about what you're doing? Uh, sure. One last bit. We have a critical moment coming up where we might lose enough nuclear power in Illinois to power, I mean, way more than the entire Bitcoin network in the, in the whole world, right? So like... We're about to lose a colossal amount of energy because the owners of the plant can't tolerate the downside risk of cheap power coming back with cheap natural gas and the wind subsidized wind. So they're like, if we can't get if we can't get a steady price for an, our nuclear electricity, we're out. We're tapping out now. So these are nuclear plants right outside the Chicago. They have a critical importance in keeping electricity prices in Illinois low, keeping emissions low and protecting us in the case of big blizzards. They did a Remarkable job. Stayed on 100% during the recent uh, February blizzards that knocked out Texas. So those plants are going to be lost, especially any of your listeners or any of your network in Illinois needs to get a hold of me. You can DM me on Twitter at Energy Bands and you can, you know, you've been tweeting my name out. You can get a hold of me there. We need help. We need it soon. We need it rapidly. We are about to lose those plants. And that's something you can do to, to definitely get on the right side of the cosmic leg, ledger that you started with society by getting into something weird like crypto. Weird like crypto. Oh, come on. I say that, I say that with a grin. <laughs> I say that with love. All right. All right. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Do let me know when you're back in the Boston area. Everybody out in Illinois, get in touch. See how you can help, what we can do. Um, and until next time, make sure you hit that like and subscribe button, turn on notifications so you never miss another video. And Mark, enjoy Germany. All right. Stay free, Justin. Talk to Bye -bye. you later. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to catch more, make sure to hit that subscribe button right now and turn on notifications for future episodes. You can follow me directly on Twitter at O'Donnell, the number 4NH, to keep up to date with what I'm working on. And if you want to be among the first to support this channel, check out our Patreon link in the description. And as always, don't forget to head on over to snackswag.com to get your freshest Liberty Swag today. Until next time, be free, everybody. We'll